Hi, I'm Stephen Wilson, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. Make me a deal and make it good for me. I won't get full of myself, I can't afford to be. This is small town music, this is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away. Hey everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis. I'm Craig Smith. And joining us in the Zoo Room to discuss his new solo album, The Harmony Codex, please welcome singer, songwriter, and producer, Stephen Wilson. How you doing, Stephen? I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. The album hits record stores Friday, September 29th. Uh, CD, vinyl editions. There's a a collector's orange edition vinyl. Fun stuff. I've got the cassette. Cassette, yeah. Deluxe edition, Blu-ray. Yeah, it's funny. When I was growing up, it was like cassette and vinyl. But now there's about seven or eight different formats every time. Crazy. (laughs) It's changing times, yeah. And how do you feel about the vinyl pressings lately? Sometimes when I buy one, it's fantastic. And sometimes not so much. How do you uh, do some quality control on your own work? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, obviously, I can't go around listening to every copy that's pressed. But, uh, you know, it. I think it depends on the factories. Sometimes we have a few factories over here in Europe. I'm sure you've got a few over there in America. Uh, but I'm, you know, my label is Universal. So Universal have their particular favoured nations when it comes to pressing. Um, I've not I've not had any problems um, with, you know, with with the pressings I've listened to. Um, you'd have to ask the, the fans, I guess. Um, but I've not I've not noticed anything. Well, that's good. And I feel like uh, the quality of your work, the way you record and all the work that you've done with you know, classic albums from Jethro Tull and Roxy Music. And I've been enjoying the Who's Next mixes that you've done this week. Uh, I feel like you're a stickler for that type of thing. So that's why I wanted to ask that question. Yeah. And also, I suppose the other thing worth pointing out there is the vinyl these days. If you've got a 65 minute album, which is a 65 minute album, you do it on double vinyl. You're kind of keeping the, the playing time of each side to around 15, 16 minutes, which is pretty good. I think the real problems come when you're trying to cram 20, 20 plus minutes of, of music onto one side of vinyl. But a lot of records these days kind of spread the music out a bit more, which I think is a is a good trend. It's a good trend. All right, except if except when there's two songs on a side and I gotta flip it four times. Well, that's the downside. Yeah, that's the downside. You've got to get off your ass every 10 minutes yeah, to flip it. Yeah. Side, yeah. I'm, I'm getting yeah. my steps in just to enjoy some tunes. <laughs> there you All go. right, Stephen, my first uh question is. The Harmony Codex. How did you come up with that title? Tell me exactly what it means in your head. So the Harmony Codex was a short story. And originally it was a short story that I published in my book last year. The book was called Limited Edition of One. And Limited Edition of One was essentially an autobiography, but it wasn't because it was more than that. It was several uh, self-contained freestanding chapters some of which were autobiographical, some of which were were my ideas about music, some of which were just lists of my favorite movies, favorite songs and explanations why. And I wanted to finish the book with a piece of fiction on the basis that 
I felt a piece of fiction would tell people as much about me, about my creative process and all of that other stuff as much as any of this autobiographical stuff would. So on that basis, I wanted to write something and I ended up writing this piece of what I would call dystopian science fiction. Dystopian science fiction in the sense that it takes place on a world very much recognizable as ours, but it becomes something quite fantastic, something quite surreal and something quite dreamlike. As I was writing the short story, I was also beginning to develop the music and the ideas behind the record. So very naturally, this kind of exchange of ideas was happening. I was writing the story. I was writing songs, characters, ideas began to pop up in both and they began to feed off each other. So what I say is that the record is not trying to tell the story of the Harmony Codex as it is in the book. Mm -hmm. It's looser than that, but there are themes that crop up in the songs that are related directly or sometimes less obviously to the story. But either way, this, the album really feels like it has a sense of storytelling to it, but primarily through the music as opposed to the lyrics, if that makes sense. Kind of like an unofficial soundtrack to the story. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I describe it as a piece of cinema for the years. It feels... It feels almost like you've watched a movie when you listen to this record. I, I like that. A piece of cinema for the ears. Okay, yeah. Stephen, I'm going to ping pong it over to Craig, who is 100% a Stephen Wilson enthusiast. Craig, what do you got for us? Thank you. That's a, that's a lofty title. Um, I, uh, I've i been following the Stephen's career for the last 20 plus years, uh, uh, and it has been my favorite artist that entire time. So it's uh, it's a, a, an honor to, to speak to you. Um, and we've spoken before uh, on on my podcast as well, uh, back oh, on the uh, Hand Cannot Erase uh, uh, when that first came oh, out. Uh, that's a long time ago, in my defense. It, it was many years. I don't expect you to remember. Yeah. Um, but my questions might get a little more granular just because of that uh, that background. Uh, listening to some of your demos, particularly uh, those on the last two Porcupine Tree sets. It reveals that elements in the final mixes of uh, some really beloved songs were there right from the beginning. Um, what percentage of demos of yours never develop or uh, bind with something else to move on to uh, album or B-side release? Do you know what? It really varies. So, for example, with this record, you know, I mean, just to backtrack slightly here, obviously one of the things that you're expected to do these days, and we alluded to this at the beginning, is the deluxe edition and that's what you're talking about these deluxe editions that have the bonus disc with demos and b-sides and outtakes and stuff now you're kind of expected to do that these days but part of the fan experience is to give that deluxe edition now normally i have on these records i have a bunch of other songs which some of which you know good but i didn't feel were quite good enough to be on the album or they're good they just didn't fit in uh, stylistically or conceptually with the record the harmony codex i had nothing nothing left over at all i literally worked on 10 songs so the harmony codex is an album where i literally worked on 10 songs for three years and i was refining and developing the ideas behind each of the songs and normally I, as i say normally i would have six or seven songs which i might have started and they didn't quite gel they fell by the wayside and those would end up being the bonus tracks, B-sides. Um, 
so this is quite an unusual situation for me to not have any songs left over, but it was kind of testament to the fact that I was very passionate about the 10 songs. I, was, I felt like they'd all kind of, you know, earned their right to be on the record. So that's unusual for me. The, the answer to the other part of your question, the demos. Now, the thing is these days, this kind of dividing line between um, making a demo and recording a master has become very blurred. If we go back to earlier periods in the history of, of music, of course, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s even, artists would be writing songs and making a little demo on a on a cassette or a porter studio and, or in a hotel room. Nowadays, you're kind of recording at pretty high resolution and pretty high quality right from the very inception of an idea. And I've found this over the years that particularly with Voight, with my lead vocal, very often the very early take of a vocal is something I struggle to recreate later on down the line. can be also be the case with guitar solos, things that you just think you're just knocking off as like a placeholder. You know, I'll, I'll do that again properly, you know, later. I'll figure it out later. And then you can never quite recapture the soul and the spirit of it. And I've learned that at my cost over the years. So these days I make sure I'm recording everything at the very highest resolution in the best possible circumstances, best possible quality right from the beginning. So this dividing line between a demo and um, a master becomes more and more blurred. It's almost like the work in progress is there from the very beginning. And so, yes, as you say, you will always hear elements of the final piece sometimes in those very sometimes the lead vocal i never i can never better it and if you think about it it makes sense because the moment you write a song is the moment you're most closely connected to the sentiment the feeling and the emotion of the words that you've written so that vocal many if you think about it, it makes sense that vocal you do there and then is the one that's kind of most closely connected to that feeling because that six months later you're in some fancy studio and you're trying to cut a new vocal, a better vocal. And you're like, well, I don't even remember how I felt when I wrote these lyrics. So I've learned this, you know, over the years to always try and capture particularly a lead vocal in case, case I can never better it. And that's certainly true. I think of all the vocals on Harmony Codex, they're all early takes. Let me jump in with vocals then, Stephen. When you go out and perform this album live or any of your songs live, how do you recreate that initial studio moment of your vocal when you're playing live in front of an audience? How do you get well, there? Well, the simple answer is, is quite often you don't. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're responding to a very different situation. You're responding to the fact you're in front of a live audience and you're responding to the kind of adrenaline and energy of of a live performance and so things are different things develop i mean i've you know there are certain songs um that i've written over the years for example that are real craig mentioned you know the hand cannot erase album there's a song on that record called routine which has got a very it's a very emotional song it's an incredibly sad song and um it's got this beautiful animation that kind of tells a story as, as a video as well now, quite often when I was performing that song, I'd, be, I'd find myself 
performing it trying to remember you know it kind of becomes more of a kind of cerebral process what's the next line or oh, you say and i look out in the audience there's people weeping and i'm like i have to remind myself oh yeah this is a really heartbreaking song <laughs> um and I, that's not to suggest that i'm not putting feeling into it but let's right. just say that that my my emotional state is very displaced from the one say perhaps of somebody hearing it for the first time or myself performing it for the first time and how to be of use make the tea and the soup all of their favorites throw them away and all the school books and the running shoes washing them clean in the dirty steel sink So it's a, it's, you know, it's one of, it's one of those things about live performances. You're, you know, it's essentially you're going out and painting the same painting every night and who would want to do that? Really? It's right. kind of odd. It's kind of an odd situation as a performer, a painter doesn't paint the same painting every night. Um, so it's something that you kind of have to come to terms with. And yes, some nights probably I am going through the motions. Uh, if, if I'm totally honest, I think every performer would, would have to admit the same. You can't put the same emotion into it every single time. The lyrics for me on the Harmony Codex are very emotionally heavy. When you write songs like this, is it kind of therapy for you? That's a good question. I suppose so. I mean, this again, this record is unique um, in several respects. One of the other the other sort of scenarios that's very unique on this record is that it was a, it was made during lockdown, so. Let touch wood that that'll never happen again but there's certainly an energy that that i think the record has because of this sense of enforced isolation enforced um being cut off from from well not even being aware necessarily of an audience for this record and when i started making the record was right at the beginning of lockdown and it was right at a time when i should have been out performing my previous record the future bites live mm. and i could my tour got cancelled and i found myself suddenly in this situation where a i'm completely cut off from the rest of the world and b i've got all this time on my hands that i wasn't expecting what am i going to do okay let's start making some music no agenda no particular pressure to make another record the previous one hasn't even come out at this point so i'm already making music really to please myself now there's a sense that that's that's what i always do anyway i'm very much of the opinion that an artist should always essentially be creating to please themselves first and foremost but i think even more so in the case of the harmony codex i wasn't even necessarily aware of there being an audience out there um this kind of feeling of being very much in a bubble so a lot of the there were there were lots of other factors too i just got married i'd become a stepfather so there were a lot of other things to do with 
taking stock. And I think you can, you know, if you listen to the lyrics of songs like What Life Brings, Time Is Running, Time Is Running Out is very clearly, you know, autobiographical. It refers to very specifically to things in my life, um, good and bad. A cigarette on a summer night Like the short-lived soul of the man inside And the noise that you hear as you ride off another year You just leaned into the rain Pull your head down, put your foot upon the rail Now you realize that God has let you down Cause time is running out And this idea that, yeah, I'm 55 now. I have to acknowledge the fact that I'm well into the second half of my life. And you start to question what motivates you. You start to question whether you've arrived. You know, a lot of this record is really about this idea of the staircase, even, which is fundamental to a lot of the songs. This idea of the infinite staircase is really a metaphor for it's about the journey. It's not about the arrival. And Craig will know, I'm sure this goes back way 20 years ago to a song called arriving somewhere, but not here. This idea of it's about the process. It's not about the end result. And and that as a metaphor for life, you know, about enjoying the experience of what life kind of throws at you. And very rarely do you get the things that you, you imagined you dreamed of. You never quite, my life is a, is a great example of that, you know, but wow, what an incredible life I've had anyway. And I think that's songs like time is running out. What life brings are absolutely about that. Greg, what do you got for us? If, if we can pivot back to demos for, for another bit, uh, I had another question. I was kind of really interested when listening uh, at the chunks that you took out of songs. Uh, for example, the the bridge of Lazarus. Um, how do you know when to stop building on a song? And once you've put it out there, are, I, I know you've mentioned in the past that you know there have always been the, the one B side you wish was on the album. You know, in retrospect, do you feel that with songs once you've released them and also are there any pieces that we might know of from one song that became a completely new song um wow uh i don't tend to go back i think you know my 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 hard drive in my studio is littered with songs that were left off even left off deluxe editions, you know, uh, because I kind of said to myself, you know what, I might revisit that one day and then never do. <laughs> Even the track called The Future Bites, you know, has never come out. There's a track called The Future, but it never came out. I kind of put it aside, thought, oh, you know, I might finish that one day and I probably never will. Um, there are there are tracks that um, that have been left off deluxe editions because I felt they were too good to stroke, you know, quote unquote, give away as bonus material, but actually ultimately never got around to revisiting them. Otherwise one day, one day I might though, one day I might. So you never know. 
Um, tra- bits of tracks I took out that became other tracks. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's an example on this new record, the Harmony Codex. Um, the track called Beautiful Scarecrow was originally a section of the track called Impossible Tightrope. Oh, wow. And- Yeah, I know it's see the impossible tightrope was originally 20 minutes long, this long thing. I do this quite a lot. I'll write this long rambling thing and then cut it down and then and then maybe take out parts and develop them. So that's happened a few times over the years. You probably also know Craig Strip the Soul originally dot three was the middle part of Strip the Soul. Yeah. Uh and and I and I, you know, it could was originally like the 15 minute long thing. So things like that. Yeah. Why do I do that? How do I do that? How does that work? I've no idea. It's all, you know, it's all just based on, you know, intu- intuition. Uh, does something feel right? You know, sometimes feel things feel right. Uh, being long, rambling things. Sometimes things feel better when they're broken up into individual songs, more, more cohesive. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. That middle eight in the middle of Lazarus, by the way, I think there was a general feeling that it was just too uh, quirky for its own good because this is a very dreamy, beautiful song. And then there's this really abrasive middle eight. So I think um, I can't remember what the exact discussion would have been at the time, but it, but it had to be replaced for that reason. It didn't have to be, but I think I wanted to for that reason, yeah.
Is that particularly your decision or do you bounce that off, you know, uh, you know, at the time, would that have been, you know, anybody else in the band or, you know, is that something that you come to before you bring it to finalize? It would have been ultimately my decision, but it would have been something that people would have commented on and I would have been free to take it on board or not. And right. sometimes, sometimes I will say, you know what, they're right. And I can see what they mean. And sometimes I'll say, nah, fuck it. It's amazing. We're sticking with it my way. And so, right. it, you know, but it's, I think that's the point, you know, for me is that I'm always open to feedback. Um, but the the option to take it on board or not, of course, is it really depends on the, you know, the conviction you have uh, about certain things. My career would have been a very different one if I'd listened to all the people's advice, you know, that people have given me over the years. Uh, and simultaneously, it would have been a very different one if I'd not listened to any of it. So it's it's really a question of taking stuff on board and deciding yourself, you know, whether they've got a point. You know, I think feedback is a really important th when you're making the record. You know, the feedback is really important. I, I do have a certain group of friends and people, my wife, whose opinion I will trust based on the fact that I know also what their agenda is i know what other kind of music they like and i know what they're likely to respond to or not and it's not always to do with the quality it's something simply sometimes simply because it's not their kind of thing you know so all of those factors you kind of have to take into account i think i feel like as i'm as we're talking to you and hearing you answer these questions i feel like this is how pete townsend also feels throughout his career um, you're just giving me like a, a, a Townsend vibe with, with, you know, how important the demos are and sticking to what you believe is the right way to craft the song and present the song. And, um, and that's a, I, obviously that's a compliment, Stephen. Very much. Very um, much. You brought yeah, up. I can, I can see what you would say. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go. Sorry, but you brought a beautiful scarecrow. It's one of my faves on the album. The 
lyric, you spit me out, you suck the air from the room and give me cause to doubt. I don't think I like this scarecrow person. Who is this person? <laughs> you have to wait and see the video for that. We're making this incredible video. In fact, Jess Cope, who did the, the video for Routine that I mentioned before, she's doing this new video for Beautiful Scarecrow. And we're going to release it on Halloween. And that will nice. give you some idea about the the kind of imagery that is, she's going for with that song. Yeah, it's a pretty dark song. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, ultimately, Beautiful Scarecrow, the image is about finding, sometimes finding the positive in the negative, finding the beautiful in the ugly, um, finding finding something to cherish in what isn't necessarily apparently immediately appealing. Uh, which so there is a kind of positive sentiment to it, but you're right. That opening stanza is pretty bleak. Yeah, yeah, it's rough. It's rough. I wonder, I wonder where I was that day when I wrote that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I want to know. Um, I don't think I want to know either. I don't want to go back there. That's for sure. Stephen, um, you have some guest vocals on the song "Rock Bottom," and I do not want to butcher this woman's name. So please tell her, tell the audience her name. Uh, Ninette Tayeb. And Ninette is also the singer that, again, on the aforementioned routine, she also sang with me on probably my most successful solo track, Pariah, which was a duet between us. So we have a little bit of a history going back uh, seven or eight years now. So this is our latest duet stroke collaboration. Yeah. I feel it. is fantastic the video is amazing go look at the video people it's on youtube and this one is my favorite track right now that's my favorite track is rock bottom and how do you decide if a song is going to be a duet or if you're going to sing it solo well in this case this is actually um ninette's song rock bottom so the whole history that the whole history of this which is probably what's your favorite because it's probably better than all the others. <laughs> so the whole history of this song is that Ninette and me decided we wanted to do a new duet on the record. And I told her about the concept I was coming up with. And she said to me, Oh, you know what? I think I've got a song that might fit with your, your kind of basic concept for the record. And she played me this song, which was just her on guitar. And she'd done it in a very kind of alternative guitar indie way. And as soon as she played it to me, I thought this should sound like a Bond theme. This should sound like a big John Barry-esque, orchestrated, um, epic James Bond kind of theme style. And I said to her, do you mind if I take the song away and and do this kind of arrangement on it? And I'm going to play it to you and tell me what you think, because I have this particular vision in mind. And so that's that's what I did. So I took it away and I did all these string parts, horn parts, 
the kind of almost trip hop rhythm, the big solo at the end, the pi- and she luckily she loved it. So that's so that's the history of of rock bottom. Yeah. So it's actually it's actually an Annette song. Yeah. All right. I did not know that. So thank you for letting me know. And uh, excellent, just an excellent track, Craig. Yeah. Let's. Um. I'm kind of curious about something with the uh, the Future Bites tour that uh, since it didn't materialize during lockdown, you did uh, videos that were put out on YouTube that were um, you know solo versions of various songs from your catalog. And some of those ended up being used on the Porcupine Tree, re- if we can call it, reunion tour um, last year. Were were those songs? Because some of them were were a surprise. Were were those songs that would have been on the Future Bites tour had that materialized? Um, not necessarily. I think the Future Bites tour would have been something quite different. The the Future Bites show that I had planned was very very much based on the concepts of the album, the idea of marketing an album like a pair of sneakers or like a perfume or, you know, like some kind of designer product. And unfortunately the timing was disastrous because, uh, well, A, because the album came out in lockdown, but B, because the last thing anybody wanted during lockdown was this kind of alienating concept of the artist presenting themselves as this very kind of distant commodity. It was the last thing people wanted in lockdown. So it was a disaster timing wise, but an album I'm very proud of, but the tour would have been something more along those lines of like the, almost like a pastiche of a retail experience. And so the, the whole lockdown sessions was more a question of me saying, what songs have I never performed live? Um, so things like significant other, which I'd never performed live collapse, the light into earth, which I'd never performed live. Um, the Taylor Swift cover of course was, was something I wouldn't say purely to upset my fans because I genuinely love the song, but I knew it was going to upset some of my fans. Couldn't resist. I'm going to do a Taylor Swift song. Um, a brilliant song, by the way. Rebecca rode up on the afternoon train It was sunny Her salt box house on the coast Took a mine of St. Louis There was the heir to the Standard Oil name And money And the town said How did a middle class divorcee do it? But when he was charming Even a little gauche it's only so far new money goes They picked out a home and called it Holiday House Their parties were tasteful, if a little loud The doctor had told him to settle down It must have been hurt for his heart gave out And they said, there goes the last great American dynasty um and then other and then and then other things were uh half lights which i think i i just always loved that song do i look beautiful in the half lights
and it hadn't been on the album. You mentioned earlier about songs I wish had been on an album. There's a great example. And Drown With Me is the other one I did, you know. So picking these songs that had been left off the records and I and I felt were kind of under you know not so well known underappreciated because they hadn't been on the records so picking things like that as as more unexpected unusual choices so there was a I think there was a bunch of factors uh, in that case but certainly things like um uh collapse collapse the light into earth I, when i did that version i was surprised how well it worked and i was like ah yeah we could do that on the pt tour and and so we did yeah Uh, th that was the first time I went into a tour without setless spoilers. So just that, and I haven't had that for as long as the internet's been around. So it was, it was just fantastic to hear that stuff and be surprised by it, by not knowing it was coming. Which is what a show should, I mean, I've always felt a show yeah. should, be, should be like that, you know, and I get so frustrated when I go and see certain artists I like who shall remain nameless. And I, it's almost like I could write <laughs> I could write the set list before I before I even arrive at the venue. Yeah. I know exactly what they're going to play. Tour in, tour out. I know exactly what I'm going to get to hear, with a few exceptions. But I love the idea that, firstly, I love the idea on the PT tour that we were going to play a whole new album, but also that we were going to pick out what you know what you guys in America called the deep cuts. You know, things that wow, never expected to hear that. You know, and a few favorites as well. But I would say hits, except we don't have any. But you know, the nearest thing. <laughs> The nearest equivalent we have to it. So we kind of, we we tried to do it was a long show. We tried to cover as many bases as possible, but certainly for people like yourself who maybe are more deep in the catalogue, that you would be pleasantly surprised, you know, that you would go as we never expected to hear that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Stephen, when you're offered one of these classic albums to go in and remix, has there ever been a time where you thought to yourself, I don't think I can do better? 
than the original. The original is perfect. Well, they, don't, they don't need me. Well, a lot, but bear in mind that I'm the main reason I'm commissioned to remix a lot of the time mm-hmm. is to create a spatial audio version of the albums. Okay. And in most of these cases, almost without exception, that's never been done before. Right. So, for example, you mentioned Who's Next. I can't better the stereo mix. It's brilliant. It's perfect. It's Glyn Johns, for Christ's sake. You know, it's, it's an amazing mix. But as part of my process, in order to create a spatial audio mix, a 5.1 and a Dolby Atmos, I have to start by recreating the stereo as closely as I can. And so I'm constantly referencing that original mix and trying to match it. Um, the best I can hope to do with something like that is to come close to matching it and not going to better it. Now, if the record company or the artists want to throw in my stereo mix as a bonus, they have that option and they've done that with yeah. the who. And I'm kind of a little bit ambivalent about that because it's like, well, you're kind of setting me up to get a kick in from the fans. Cause I can't, but, But again, I remind people, the reason I did that mix in the first place is not to compete with the original stereo mix, but as a basis to then go on and create a spatial audio version. And that's what these exercises are really about, almost without exception. And do you turn down any of these? Is there any any ones you don't want to do? Yeah, I turn down things that I don't feel I'm sufficiently a fan of. Okay. To do because my my philosophy is if you're going to do something like this, you've got to really have come at it with a fan's perspective if you're going to do a good job. Now I say that because early on I did a couple of jobs where I wasn't really. In fact, to be fair, in lockdown I took on a couple of jobs. I did a Kiss album. I've never really been a Kiss fan. I actually grew to admire it, uh, not having been familiar with Kiss before. Bob Ezrin's production was great. Mm. I became a fan, but I don't think I, if it hadn't been for lockdown, I don't think I would have taken that on because I wasn't really familiar with the album. And I always feel like fans can hear it. They can hear it if you're not really fully engaged and fully a fan of a record. So normally my rule is I want to be able to say genuinely, I know the record. I grew up with it. I'm a fan of the record because I think the results will be better if I am genuinely engaged and a fan of a record. So on that basis, I have turned, I have turned down things that were great records, but just I'm not personally, I'm not familiar enough with them. Well, I'm glad you to do a good job. I think go on. Well, I'm glad you brought up destroyer because that's the one that Craig and I both jumped out at us as it felt like a, an oddity uh, for Stephen Wilson to do, but yeah, now, now you've set the record straight. So thank you. I, I'd never even heard that record before. Um, and do you know, and like I said to you, if it hadn't been for lockdown, I've suddenly had a lot more time on my hands sure. than I thought I was going to have, I probably wouldn't have taken it on, but I just, again, just to say, I actually really grew to admire that record. Uh, particularly the Bob Ezrin production is, it's fantastic. So I even sometimes, even records that I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily familiar with, I can grow to love them as a result of working on them. Yeah. And and I know 100% that it doesn't matter what the album is, you take that job quite seriously. So. Yeah, I do. Uh, I've heard too many hack jobs uh, over the years, remixes, yeah. where it was so obvious to me that the person doing the mix had no affinity at all 
with again mentioning no names or records but i've heard some surround mixes where it was obvious to me that the person doing the mix was the album was like an alien life form to them i mean it's like how could you how could you, how could you use the wrong vocal takes or use the wrong guitar solo or miss the fact that you completely missed a piano part and and i hate that when i as a fan i hate that so much so to me when i'm doing these mixes i'm like i'm doing these for people that know these records better than the artist yeah better than the artist because the artist hasn't listened to the record for 20 years 30 40 years sometimes because artists generally don't i don't listen to my own music after i've finished it so the fans know the music better than the artist so that's who you're doing it for you're doing it for people that know the record like the back of their hand and the last thing you want to do is miss out a piano part or use the wrong take of a guitar so and by the way i have made mistakes like that but very few and far between i'm mm. happy to say because no one is perfect no one is perfect. I think I used the wrong vocal take on one Tears of Fears song. And as the fans, of course, straight away, they spotted it. <laughs> and, I, and I'd missed it uh, to my own. And I love that record. To my own fault, I'd missed it. And uh, and I fixed it now on the on the Atmos mix. This was on the 5-1 mix. Um, so even I still make mistakes, even knowing and loving the records. All right. I'm going to throw it to Craig in a minute. But first, I want to tell people, Find everything about Stephen Wilson. Go to stephenwilsonhq.com, Twitter and Instagram at stephenwilsonhq. Craig. Uh, uh, as a very big fan of the Incident record, is there any crack in your catalog that you feel deserves a second chance that it might not have gotten? And the reason I'm asking this is because in the uh, documentary that comes in the Dead, the Dead Wing set, you specifically mentioned Mellotron Scratch as one of those, which has always been one of my absolute favorites. A tiny flame inside my head A compromise So I'm curious if it's, you know, and this can be in your solo catalog as well. Is, is there something that just, you know, in terms of like, maybe maybe we should have done that on that tour. Maybe I should have brought this out. And, you know, maybe the time is right for a reevaluation of this song in particular. Well, we did I Drive the Hearse off the incident um, yes. on, on the recent tour. Uh, which, you know, I'm very proud of that song. When this freedom states my Hoping it won't go away And you were always my mistake 
mistake um the incident it's not one of my favorites honestly um i, I appreciate you 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 like it this is why I, I sometimes i don't like to talk so much about because you know it always used to upset me when pink floyd used to trash atom heart mother you know because it's like <laughs> i love that record you know and they trash they always trash it and it's upsetting sometimes when the artist trashes their own so i'm not going to trash it it's not one of my favorites i think um I think the the sound of the band at that point had had become too too much of an archetype, and it's why I stopped. Really, it's why we stopped because I felt like the band had kind of found this sound and this sort of mixture of of styles and influences. Bit of heavy, bit of heavy, bit of acoustic, some harmony vocals, bit of ambient sound design. Put it all together. What have you got? You've got a Porcupine Tree album. And I felt st- straight away I kind of kicked against that that idea. So I, I went off and made Insurgentes and did something right. completely different. And the incident for me always is slightly in my mind is like, oh, that's when the band began to repeat itself. But I love I Drive the Hearse. That's a beautiful, beautiful song. Yeah. I think the whole bit at the end, seance, circle of manias, all, all that is is up there with some of the best stuff you've done. Okay. I, I love the back half of that record. That that whole suite at the end is just fantastic. Cool. I mean, I'm really glad you like it. Listen, I don't want to get. I don't want to give the idea that I'd really hate it. I don't. I just <laughs> to me, I get it. to me, it's it's below in terms of the sort of hierarchy for me. With Porcupine Tree, it's always in absentia and Fear of a Blank Planet. For me, those are the two albums where I felt like we really peaked. Dead Wing feels like a sort of transitional album, somewhere in between. And and the incident for me is like, well, if we carried on. I would have probably seen that as the beginning of a decline. As it is, it's slightly below um, the others for me. Yeah. Okay. Stephen, in closing, thank you so much for your time today. When can the fans expect you to be touring with the Harmony Codex? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not in any rush to do this uh, because the album is quite demanding and it's quite a. Uh, uh, an epic piece of music. I want to give people time to to live with it, to absorb it, to listen to it. I think uh, right now I'm more focused on on talking about the record, promoting the record. We've been doing a lot of listening events around the record in Dolby Atmos, giving people the opportunity to hear the record in spatial audio because I understand a lot of people will never otherwise get to hear it, you know, in that way. And I'm going to try and do a few more of those. Um, just beginning to think about live presentation um, and how I would do it. I'm not 100% sure yet. I want to do something very immersive, very spatial, again, taking this idea of cinema for the years uh, as a starting point. So probably I think realistically next spring might be might be when you see tour dates announced. And coming I mean, to the or next week. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We we'll come to the States. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Still, still love to come to the States. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles. And when you come, I, I, hopefully I get to uh, come and say hello. And you uh, so appreciate your time today. The final question is, I always ask the artist to choose a playout song from the new album to end the episode. Oh. What would you like to me to use for the playout song? Well, uh, what uh beautiful scarecrow. I, th- I think that, that is almost it's almost like 
um, a little musical journey, even within itself. You know, like I talk about the album as a musical journey, all the different tracks, the way they flow. But that track in itself has got so much going on. Um, and it's only five minutes and it's it, it's like a little a little novel in this in the space of, uh, you know, a few pages to use that analogy. So, I yeah, let's have uh, let's have Beautiful Scarecrow as the play out. Excellent. Thank you so much, Stephen. Everyone go by the Harmony Codex, throw on the headphones, turn out the lights. And you're going to have to listen to this definitely more than one time to really get involved in every aspect of what is happening as Stephen says, cinema for the ears. So thank you so much, Stephen. Continued success promoting and touring the album eventually. Craig, thank you so much for sitting in. And everyone else, please enjoy Beautiful Scarecrow. Thanks, guys. Thank you.